I want to meet you this morning. If you have a Bible, go with me to Psalms, chapter 46, the songbook of the Hebrew people. It's one of the most quoted books in the New Testament. That makes sense considering the fact that it was probably the most known of all of the Old Testament books to New Testament people. And the reason it was most known is because we know songs. You can hear the first line of a song and you remember where you were when it mattered to you. Maybe it was your first, the song you sang at your wedding, the song that you danced with your, your future spouse to for the first time, the song that was playing when this seminal moment happened in your life and you remember it. We memorize lyrics, we memorize beat and melody, and we do it easier than memorizing poetry or memorizing prose. We do it because the music helps aid it along, or the melody or the harmony helps aid it along. Music was so important to the Hebrews that at his death, Jesus starts to sing the 22nd Psalm. Eloi, Eloi, lamach sabachthani, my God, my God. Why hast thou forsaken me? And I don't think he said it. I think he sang it. And he sang it because that's how they heard those words. They heard them sang out loud together. That's why I say it was the most common book to Old Testament, to Hebrew minds in the century of Christ, because we memorize the songs of our youth. And so one line was all he needed in Psalms 22, by the way. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He doesn't sing the rest of the song. He doesn't have to because the assembled crowd would have sang the song for him. And why that's important is because as you get deeper into Psalms 22, you find that right before the chapter ends, it says that I do not turn my face away from my own. And it let the crowd know God's not forsaking me. I am his own. I am here on your behalf. And he knew that if he starts the song, they'll finish the song. And he also knew that if they would start the song, they would finish the song. And the finishing line in the Hebrew is, it is finished. And so as he hangs his head to die, he hums the last line, it is finished. That's pretty awesome. Now that's not unusual. Not, not for the first century audience that understood Torah, Psalms, and prophets. They were singing these songs. And the songs taught them theology. But the, but the songs didn't only teach them theology, the songs couched their theology. Meaning that whatever it was they brought to the song, they planted it inside of that melody, and then that song carried the theology for them. Let me give you an example from Psalms 46. And verse 4, there is a river whose streams shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God shall help her just at the break of dawn, or literally in the Hebrew, just at the turning of the morning. I like that phrase. Just as the morning turns, God shows up, which was a way of, sort of a poetical way of saying that as the sun rises, that is God. That, that is God rising into the darkness of your moment, taking your night and turning it into day. That's the cock crowing. Amen. That's the rooster 
who is not, by the way, ever crowing on your guilt, but crowing to show you that a new day is dawning. Peter, before the cock crows twice, you will have denied me thrice. But don't ever forget that the rooster crows to show you that there's a new day. And so in the Hebrew mindset, as the sun rises on the darkness, the new day dawns, but God rises into the darkness of my situation. But it's the river, the streams whereof make glad the city of the Most High God. I want to concentrate on that river today. I want to talk to you today about there is a river, but I, I want to talk about the river of the Holy Spirit. And I want to take it from its understanding in a Hebrew mindset into its understanding for us in a Christian mindset. And of course, we're going to bring that river right through Jesus because that's what the, that's the narrative flow of the Bible is to pull that river. This isn't unusual. To try to pull the river through Jesus isn't unusual. It's, it's, it's odd that we're not pulling everything through Jesus. What's unusual is that we don't take all of our sermons and songs and thoughts and feelings about God and pull them through the eye of the needle that is Jesus. Everything compresses down into Christ and then comes out the other side. As Paul says in Colossians 1, in Christ all things consist. A word that literally means in things, in Christ all things are held together. It's as if he took all those various narrative, imagine all the narrative streams like strings, and Jesus grabs all of them and pulls them together into one and then holds that narrative in his hands. And that's the hand that then gets crucified at Cal- so that every story gets crucified at Calvary and what flows out the other side is the redeemed narrative. Hallelujah. So, so then all of the world finds its nexus in Christ, the climactic event of eternity, and then flows out the resurrection of the other side so that Jesus becomes the center pole for everything that could ever happen. So every story then has to flow through Jesus. Even our own stories have to flow through Jesus. And that's great news. Because if our stories have to flow through Jesus, Christ crucified and resurrected means at some point my story has to flow through the crucified Christ. I love that. And I, and I, want, I want my story to flow through the crucified Christ now so I get in on the party. Right? I want it to flow through Christ now so I can get in on the joy of that. So that, so that everything can matter. And so that it's not just history, it's not just my past, it's not just my life, it can matter because it's in Christ. And so all of the streams, we use that phrase to talk about different variants, right? We have streams of thought. We have a stream of consciousness. What we mean is not just a singular thought. We have various thoughts. If I have, my stream of thought is not my streams of thought, but it's just a narrative. It's not the whole thing I think about all the time, right? It's not, let's say it this way, it's not the full river of my thought. It's just the stream of where I'm going right now. I find this in ministry. Like I can preach anything in this book and enjoy it, but I have streams of thought. I have like little places I can't get out of for a weekend sometimes or for an hour or for 10 minutes. My problem is that sometimes I try to squeeze in five streams into one hour and, and jump from stream to stream. And, and, and that, that's all of us. That's, that's, that's our life. And so it's, but streams flow with the geography. Amen. If, you, if, you, if you drop the puddle, the, the, the drop of water rather, onto, the, onto a slope, it will go where it will go with no warning. 
juts left and right and right and right and you can't figure out why, why, is it why did it just make two right moves and then a left move. There's no real reason why other than these microscopic little beads of dirt or whatever that causes it to... And that's, a, that's an incredible thing. It's aided along by gravity and physics that are way past this pea-sized brain to understand. It, but I can watch it and see that it happens and the only way to change it is to obstruct it. To, to get in its way, and when I get in its way, then it pools up or it goes where it didn't, wasn't destined to go. And so I find that I'm best to just let the stream do what it will do because there is a river. The streams whereof make glad the city of the Most High God. There is a narrative flow that the Bible takes on its inevitable path through Christ and into this room. Through Christ and into your heart. And the only thing I can do is not aid it, but hinder it. I can't make the river flow. It didn't need me to flow. It was flowing long before I showed up. It'll be flowing long after I'm gone, but I can impede it. I can step in front of it. I can divert it. I can move it. I can channel its energy. I can change its power. Or I can let it wash over me. Change me. Make me a part of its flow. And so Israel saw the river in tangible terms. They sang about it because it was a literal river. There was a stream. It came up from an underground source that fed the city of David. The city of David is really just a slice of the greater city of Jerusalem. What we now call Jerusalem in ancient times was just a little corner of it was called the city of David. It's right off the Jaffa Gate. If you've ever been to Jerusalem, there's, there's still the Tower of David there, which was probably not the tower that David had, but has been re, sort of over the centuries placed up as the Tower of David. This is a little corner, but there was the springs that flowed up from underground that fed that corner of the city of Jerusalem. And they were sang about as this source of good. There is a river, the streams whereof make glad the city of God, because it's our water source. In fact, at one point, David, the, the, the armies of God would even use the tunnels of that river to sneak in and out of the city of Jerusalem when they needed to, as a, as a way in and out of the city of God. And so that river was a source in the middle of God's dwelling place. Listen to those verse, listen to that next one again. God's in the middle of her, she shall not be moved, and God helps her just at the break of dawn. It's the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. And so the river flows through the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. For Israel, that was, there's a river that springs up through Jerusalem, and it sets right next to the tabernacle. It's the place where we wash. It's the place of cleansing. It's a spring that fed Jerusalem. Go to Isaiah 58. I want to add to this before we just take a slow step aside and follow the river. Isaiah chapter 58, verse 8. Eight. Listen to how similar this is to the song that we just witnessed. Then your light shall break forth like the morning. There's the sunrise. Your healing shall spring forth speedily. And your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. And you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness. Oh boy. Let me start over. 
If you take away the yoke from your midst, which is the pointing of the finger and speaking wit wickedness, you extend your soul to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted soul. Let me just pause here for a moment and say we need to take serious Isaiah 58, 9. One of the yokes in our midst is we keep pointing our finger and speaking wickedness. Let's stop pointing the finger. What do you got to point at anybody for? You don't have any judgment. You don't have condemnation to share with them. It's easy to identify what you don't like about other people. It's easy to identify what you think is wrong about others. It's also a yoke. It doesn't drag the other person down. It drags you down. We're seeing this in society if we'll pay attention. Every time we try to get quote-unquote informed, we leave angry. Why is this? We get informed. We're learning the truth. And then we're mad. We go, well, I'm mad because I don't like the way things are going. That's your yoke. You picked up a yoke you didn't even have to pick up. And you picked it up on your own. Like nobody put a gun to your head and made you do it. And now you're infuriated. And that infuriation leads to stress. And leads to lack of sleep. And leads to anxiety. And we wonder why people are losing their minds because they're feeding themselves all day long on things that make them point the finger. And the yoke is not the people you're pointing the finger at. The yoke is you and me. We were warned of this a long, long time ago. The yoke in our midst is that we point the finger and we speak wickedness. Is that we keep pointing the finger. So just bring the finger back in. Just bring it back in. Maybe even slap it on the cross. Just lay it on up there and let a nail go through it. Because that's the best place for it. All judgment needs to be met right there. Right there where that nail goes through that hand. Let that judgment be ours. If you extend your soul to the hungry, verse 10, and you satisfy the afflicted soul, your light shall dawn in the darkness and your darkness shall be as the noonday. The Lord will guide you continuously. Satisfy your soul in drought. Strengthen your bones. Listen to this. You shall be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Those from among you shall build the old waste places and you'll rise up the foundations of many generations. And you shall be called the repairer of the breach and the restorer of streets to dwell in. That'd be a good testimony. What's that church all about? They're the restorer of streets you can live in. They're the repairer of the breach. That's a place that fills the gap, that helps to fill those holes in your life. And now that's part of the stream. All right, that is part of the river. Let's take one more step. John chapter 7. As far as I'm concerned, when we come into the house of God and we open the Bible, there is nothing worth talking about that doesn't go through Jesus. I mean nothing worth preaching about or talking about that doesn't make, get us to Jesus. The hardest character to find, I'm in the Canadian church today, so all I can speak to is the American church. The hardest character to find in the American church is Jesus. I can walk into the American church and I can find a flag and I can find someone harping for politics and I can find songs about my distress, my problem, my need, my praise, my worship, my Holy Ghost. And I can wait two hours before I find out about Jesus. And I've done it over and over and over again. 
waiting on someone to talk about the only reason I got out of bed to come here. Jesus. <laughs> I think we need a restoration of Christ in our midst. I'd like to see us infatuated with Jesus. I think if we got infatuated with Jesus, we wouldn't have time to argue about all the theological wranglings and the different streams we got going. We'd be so excited to talk about Jesus and just dwell on Christ and who he is. Let's listen to Jesus for a moment. Just a few verses in John 7. I know I've read more scripture this morning, but I'm setting up. John 7, 37, on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow living rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the spirit whom those believing in him would receive for the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now, an interesting thing happened in the middle of verse 38. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. However, there's not a single scripture in either the Christian Old Testament or the Jewish Hebrew Bible that says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So are we to assume that Jesus doesn't know his Bible? Like he thought that verse was there, so he said it, and then later his disciples went, hey, that's not in the Bible, and he went, ah, shoot. <laughs> okay, maybe that one I can assume by your laughter, you assume that's probably not right. I think you're right. I don't think that's what happened. I don't think Peter elbowed him. I don't think that's in there. And he went, oh, man. I thought that was in there, guys. No. Or do we assume that Jesus is dealing with a text that we don't have? Okay, well, possibly. Maybe, maybe it was something that was written down that we did, don't have that they had that was popular. Or are we to assume, and I think we like to do this as Christians, are we to assume he added because he's the author? We like to say that a lot. He's the author of the book, so if he wants to add a verse, he can add a verse, which would have been a horrible decision in his day. Like, can you imagine in a religious environment, he just making up verses and acting like God, thus saith the Lord. That's a tough, that's a tough road, road hoe. I mean, you better, you got, you'll be careful if you're Jesus there. I don't think any of that's it. I think maybe our Syriac translation helps us more because the Syriac translation of this text pluralizes the word scripture and says, as the scriptures say, out of his heart shall flow rivers of living water. And whenever the authors would use scriptures, plural, what they're saying is the thematic stream of thought, according to Scripture, is that there's a river that comes out of the heart. It's not a single verse that says there's a river coming out of the heart. It's that the whole theme says the river's coming out of the heart. So let's assume maybe that's what Jesus meant. And let me show you that I think it's exactly what Jesus meant because we've already read for you a couple of places. We read for you what had to be popular to all of them. Psalms chapter 46, there is a river, the streams where I make glad the city of God. And we've also read for you Isaiah 58, where there'll be spring that shoot up in, in the life. Isaiah 35 even says there'll be streams in the desert. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's not just some scriptures here and there that talk about rivers. There's actually a narrative flow. Because all the way back to the Garden of Eden, when God establishes the heavens and the earth, and then he forms man from the dust of the earth, and then he gives man a garden and puts man in the garden. By the way, notice that he, he creates the man before he creates the garden because you're more important to God than structures. Like he creates man before he creates the church. He creates man before he creates Eden because it's not important to God to have a pretty garden. It's important to God to have a man that looks like him. When you get a man that looks like you, then you put something around him. 
people are more important than structures and ministries. Minister, you are more important than your ministry. God will save you before He'll save your church. He'll save you before He saves your ministry. And He'll let your ministry fall apart before He'll let you fall apart. So when I see ministry killing ministers, I know it wasn't the Holy Spirit that did that because He will not allow the minister to fall apart so that the ministry can blow up. Because it's not God's will to build gardens with no man. And so He creates man, and then He creates a garden, and He puts man inside the garden. But He can't just have a garden. He has to water it because gardens will die without water. You can put the best man in a garden, but if he has no water, everything's going to die. You can put the world's greatest gardener inside of a garden. And if he doesn't have a water hose or a stream or irrigation, he's going to go, look, I can only do so much for so long. We're just a few days from all of this falling apart. So in Genesis chapter 2, verse 10, the Bible says, And God put a river that flowed out of Eden and into the garden, and then it split off into four river heads, and it covered the earth. That's a typology of the north, the south, the east, the west. If you want to get real gospely, it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Or, or it's, it's that sort of thing. It's cornerstones on a building. It's, it's a fullness. It's a way of saying God completely took care of the earth out of one riverhead. That's how the Hebrews read their Bible. God put us in a garden. He gave us a river. It flows every rich way. But it has one source, and it keeps on flowing. And the narrative flow of that river finally picks up an ark of bulrushes and floats a redeemer downstream named Moses. The narrative flow of that river doesn't always look like a river, but it always looks like living water. Israel gets out in the wilderness, and they're dying, and they're thirsty. And they say to Moses, did you bring us out here to die? We don't think that's the kind of God we serve, because there's a river that flows in the beginning of our story. Where is that river? And Moses goes, I'll go to God and find out where it is. And God says, go smite the rock. I'll bring the water out of that rock. And he hits the rock. And what happens? There's the same river. Now, I know it's not the same river, but it's the same river. You understand what I'm saying? As far as their narrative is concerned, everywhere we go, there is a river. The streams whereof make glad the city of God. Wherever his tabernacle is, there'll be a river. Somehow, someway, God will bring a river. Streams in our desert. And here comes water out of the rock. And when you get to Ezekiel, the 47th chapter, he's having visions of God by the river Kabar, high and lifted up. And he sees the heavens open. And in his vision, he sees a temple. And the temple has a stream of water that flows out from under the throne down the steps of the temple. And he goes out and measures in the waters to his knees. And he goes out a little deeper into the water and the water's to his waist. And he goes out a little deeper into the water and the waters are to his chest. And he goes out a little deeper into the waters and there's waters to swim in, Ezekiel says. And he said the river flows down the stairs and out into the Dead Sea. And at the Dead Sea, it hits the sea and everything comes to life. This is not a prophetic vision of a future temple in Jerusalem when God pours living water into the Dead Sea and fish swim. This is a prophetic vision of when God moves into His new temple vis-a-vis you and me, the temple of God, 
And that as you let him set on the throne, there will be waters to your knees and waters to your waist and waters to your chest and waters to swim and you'll never run out of it. It'll always be there and it'll hit the dead sea of your soul and bring it to life. And fish will swim and life will happen and reproduction and new generations of believers, streams in the desert, sun coming up in the morning, all those good metaphors crammed into one, and it's you and me. And it's His body. And then when you get to Revelation, last book of the Bible, the river flows. The Bible says there's a city. He says, come up here, I'll show you the bride. The Lamb's bride. And he sees a city coming down from God out of heaven 1,500 miles long, 1,500 miles wide, 1,500 miles high. The mileage alone ought to show you it's not literal. It's not a literal city. It's an immeasurable, innumerable city full of God's people. Of every race and every tongue and every generation and every country. And the city comes down from God out of heaven and sits on a new earth. And the gates shall never be shut. And he opens them wide and he says, come here and I'll give you a tour. And as he walks in, he sees a river. And the river flows through Main Street in the New Jerusalem. And on both sides are the trees of life. The same tree of life that was in the Garden of Eden has been reproduced innumerably in the new city. And on both sides of the river are trees, the leaves whereof are for the healings of the nations. And God keeps the gates open so that the dogs on the outside can get into the inside and eat the leaves that will heal their soul for all of eternity. And I'm not talking about a future city on a new restored planet. I'm talking about the church of Jesus Christ. that knows there's a river that flows and the difference that's made on this earth is that our gates are open and anyone that wants in is absolutely allowed in. The river is not off limits. Swimming is allowed. And that river that starts in Genesis 2 runs all the way through the end of Revelation. And it pokes its head up once in a while if you read for it in the Bible. It pokes its head up, but it's always the love of God. It's always the provision of God. It's always the affection of God. It's always the compassion of God. And when our Bible characters forget it, when they miss it, they step outside the flow of their Father's love, and they're hateful and vindictive and murderous and bloody. But when they step back into the river, it washes all of that off of them. And the pictures they give of God are glorious and beautiful. In our story of Jonah, the issue with Jonah is that Jonah steps outside the river of God's flow of love and forgets that he loves Nineveh as much as he loves Judah. And having forgotten that because he hasn't been in the river for a while, he's a river guy. We're river people. We can't help it. We're in the river of God's love. We live there. But the farther we get away from the shore of the love of God, the more we dry up towards His creation. The more we shrivel like the fig leaves of Adam, and they will not cover the nakedness of a soul that has forgotten the love of God, the compassion of God, the grace of God, and the mercy of God, because we've drifted too far from the source of our life. Anthropology tells us that mankind's cities have grown around water from the beginning of humanity. And we grow around water because it's life, because we can drink it, because we can bathe in it, because we can clean stuff with it. Because it is the flow of that water, whether it's a sea or a river, that provides us with seasonal change. 
And living that river life means that that river flows in different ways. Let me just slow down here for a minute, make sure we say this correctly. You ever been around a river? It changes in seasons. It changes with rainfall. It gets bigger. It, gets, it rages more. Sometimes in seasons of drought, it goes down a little bit, but the river continues to flow. We're not talking about a natural river when we're talking about the Holy Spirit. We're talking about, of course, a supernatural river, but it maintains some of these characteristics and qualities in that it goes where it wants to. That's the Holy Spirit. Not asking permission, just moving. Just goes, ah, I'm going to go right. I'm going to move over here. Which is why we run opposite the current when we tell God who He can love. We run opposite the current. We tell God what he can do because the current goes, I don't care if you like it or not. I'm going to go over here. Now, if you don't like it, you can get out of the river, but here's where we're going to flow for a while. You can walk along the bank if you'd rather. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. You just stay close to me. You can jump back in, but this is what we're going to do. I'd like to live my life in the river, not next to the river. I want to live my life in that flow of the Holy Spirit, even though it is seasonal. I, I, I heard the Holy Spirit. I'm really careful about this stuff. Okay. I'm really careful about what God told me to say. Because I think we've thrown that around so much, it honestly doesn't even mean much anymore. People just say it all the time. And I'm not saying that people don't hear from God, because I truly believe you hear from the Holy Spirit. I just think you ought to be careful with it. Like, I hear people say stuff all the time. I know it wasn't God, because it don't look like Jesus. And they say, thus saith the Lord. And they'll quote four verses and scream, yell, speak in tongues, fall down. I think none of that was God. Wasn't a bit of that God, because none of it looked like Jesus. And I don't mean tongues and falling down is a problem. I got no speaking tongues and fall down all you want. Just look like Jesus when you hit the floor. Yeah. <laughs> look like Jesus when you get up. Yeah. Amen. Walk like Jesus. I'm okay. Whatever. Walk like Jesus. We're good. I, but I really felt the Lord this morning as we were, as, as things were shifting in worship, heading into message. Remind my people that silence is only a problem when you're with people you're not close to. But when you're with people you're intimate with, silence is beautiful. It's the space that you've created for people you love. Okay, now what what does that mean? We're really scared of silence. I've noticed it in church. I've noticed it in our prayer life. I've noticed it in our day-to-day life. Like, we have a world where we're used to volume, stuff making noise. So we get a little antsy if the volume goes away. And we need it. I'm, I'm terrible at it. Like, I've got to have the fake fan on on my app to sleep in a hotel. Because <laughs> I don't have my fan. I got my fan at home right next to my head. I go in a hotel, they don't have the fan. So I put a fake fan. I got an app that has a fan. Oh my, oh my is right. Yeah. And I crank that baby up. It's, a, it's this fake fan going nuts in my hotel room so I can sleep. I travel a lot. I'm like, I'm not going to just lay here all night in the silence. I got to have a little something in the background. So, hey, I'm preaching to the choir. I got a problem with silence a lot of times. But it drags over into my prayer life. So I feel like I got to talk all the time. Like, i got to chat God up. You know, like, I've got to come up with more stuff to pray about. Oh, I just ran out of stuff. What else? 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 And then this and this and this. And listen, get, get it all out there with God. Have a conversation. But what I, what I really feel the Lord remind us of is that silence is beautiful when it's between someone 
when it's between people you love. It disturbs us when it's with people we don't know. Let me give you an example from my own travels. When I meet people and you're around them and you've only been around them a minute or two and you've went through all the formalities of how are you, who are you, where you work, who are your kids, who are you related to, you go all around the stuff and then you run out of stuff and you've, you've, went, like, you've went like two minutes and you've run out of the stuff. And then it gets quiet and you get antsy. Now, it's not a big deal if you can go somewhere else, talk to somebody else, but when you're in a confined space, you feel like, okay, I gotta come up with something else. Yeah, you can't just sit here. And that's okay, that's, I'm not condemning that. We're that way because we're not close. Silence is uncomfortable when you're not close. But if it's your spouse, and you've spent your lives together, you can be in the same room for hours and not talk. And you don't get to the end of the day and go, what's wrong with them? <laughs> Why are they ignoring me? <laughs> and if you do, there's problems in your relationship. Maybe you should have filled the space with some talking, you know? But because, that's, because you're close to them and you're intimate, silence is beautiful. And I think we need to realize that there is a moment in our life when silence is beautiful. And I don't mean that God stops talking to us. I mean we stop all of our activity, we just stop and we let the river speak. Because if we don't stop, a lot of times we won't hear the river. We're so busy preaching, we're so busy studying, we're so busy working, we're so busy living, we're so busy serving God. I'm not talking about just the secular world, I'm talking about our spiritual religious life. We're so busy with it that we don't have time to hear what God wants to say in the moment. And I've found that there's, there's a lot of moments that I'll substitute just listening to God. I'll substitute with reading my Bible. I like to read it. So I'll read and read and read and study and write notes down, get the sermons ready, and get to the end of it. And God says, you haven't listened to me all day. You haven't taken one minute to just listen to see what I want to say about that moment, to see what I want to say about that text. And that's part of letting the river flow where it will. Because I really think our noise is like damming the river a lot of times. Our noise is us sort of stepping into the flow and not being able to really hear what it is that God's trying to say or hear what it is that God's trying to do. In John 7, Jesus is standing at the end of the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles happens at the end of the summer season. It's, it's, it, they've, they've already harvested. And the Feast of Tabernacles was the Jewish observation of the loss of water and the loss of light because the rainy season is over with and the sun's going to start going down earlier. And so the loss of light and the loss of water sets them up for going into a winter. And in their thoughts, God was seasonal in the way that he moved. Okay? God is not seasonal because we have Jesus. All right? Because we can see in Jesus, and this is why this scripture is important, we can see in Jesus that on the final day of the observation of the loss of water and the loss of light, Jesus does two things in back-to-back -back chapters. I'm the living water and I'm the light of the world. And he says it out loud during the feast so that all of Israel who is there to observe the loss of water and the loss of light will see a brand new light, brand new water in the man Jesus. What Christ does in John 7 is he steps into the flow of the river and becomes the new fountainhead. He pulls the narrative strings together of the old river and he pulls it through him so that whatever springs out of him, the Holy Spirit, springs out only through Christ. So that Christ becomes the fountainhead of a brand new river. So that that river, when it gets to Revelation, is the river of the Holy Spirit that flows out of Jesus. 
And so Christ becomes the new life. And because we have Christ, he said, out of your heart, our old translations used to say out of your belly shall flow rivers of living waters. Bad translation because this is word cardia, which is not heart or which is not stomach. It's heart. Out of your heart will flow rivers of living water. So it's not something you eat. The river is not something you just consume by study or by discipline or by doing. It's not something you just take in. It's something that comes out of you. We don't go take in the river. We live out the river. Okay. And the reason that's important is because we don't go take in the river. We live out the river, which means the fountainhead is not us and our performance. The fountainhead is Jesus. And so the fountainhead is not, I had a good week. Therefore, my life is good. Jesus pulled all the rivers into himself so that no longer would you have to smite the rock to get the water. Okay? You don't even have to speak to the rock to get the water. The water is Christ. So the river is flowing. It's a fountainhead that flows out of us constantly. Because you have the river of the regenerative power of the Holy Spirit, every single person in this place and every single person that watches or ever listens to this word Please know this, because it's the Holy Spirit, it is entirely unique in every person. It is not the same. And the reason for that is because the river does not crush your personhood. He flows into your personhood and then out through your personhood so that the expressions of the Holy Spirit that come out of you retain your qualities. Because those qualities are beautiful to your Creator. So what the river is not trying to do is create cookie-cutter Christianity where everyone dresses the same, talks the same, looks the same, acts the same, believes the same, sings the same, preaches the same. Where all personhood is suppressed beneath the surface and drowned it out. No. Our old sinful man drowns in that river. And what stands up is a new creation in Christ retaining the personhood that was you going in. If you went in with a sense of humor, you come out with a sense of humor. If you went in good looking, you come out good looking. If you went in ugly, I don't want to disappoint you, but you're going to come out ugly. We're talking physically, all right? Physically, physically. Point being, whatever your personhood is doesn't get destroyed in Christ. It gets amplified by the river. The river simply pushes forward every beautiful thing. Multi, Peter called it, there's a manifold grace of God. Manifold is, is, a, is a word that really means rainbow, multicolored. There's the multicolored grace of God, Peter said, for manifold temptations. Okay, say it the way it sounds in the Greek. There's a rainbow of God's grace to cover a rainbow of your stuff. And the reason why he needs a rainbow of his grace to cover a rainbow of your stuff is because you're a rainbow of stuff. Like there's all kinds of stuff in you. There's all kinds of personalities. There's all kinds of moments. There's all kinds of you that surfaces in different places. And every time God sees one of them, he smiles. That's my kid. Look at him. Look at her. And I don't get impressed by it because I'm human and I'm limited. But you're not mine. But when it's mine, I get impressed by it. I get impressed by Lucas and Lauren White in ways that it wouldn't impress you, that would bother you, that would bug you. But I get impressed because they're mine. And I go, look at him. Look at him. I'm so proud of him right now. 
Look at her. I love this. In, I love this look in her eye. I love who she is right here. Other people might not see it. I see it because it's mine. And because we're his. <laughs> because we're his. He looks at us and he says, the river's not here to destroy your personality. It's here to amplify it. The river's just here to flow out of you. It's the Jesus that's in you. just flows out of you so that what you are is just more precious and more beautiful and more glorious. And so the Holy Spirit then can, can then be at home in the high church with stained glass windows and robes and choirs. The Holy Spirit is excited to be there and watch the expression of Jesus in it. And he can be at home in what we call the low church. He can be at home with, without, a, with a, without a stained glass window or a robe or a choir. And he doesn't look at it and go, they're doing it right and they're doing it wrong. He looks at it and goes, the expression of my kids. Look at it. And you know that's why you feel at home in some places and not others. And that's why we got people right now sitting in churches that are in the robes with the choirs and the stained glass windows. And they could not be happier about the Jesus that they've encountered. And that's where they need to be. Because for whatever reason, the expression of Christ that flows out of them finds its fulfillment in that moment. And they see Jesus in a glorious way. And the worst thing we can do is assume that they don't know God like we do because they, their preacher wears a robe. I used to be that way, man. I'm, I'm not happy about it. I'm glad the Holy Spirit is transforming me. I didn't say totally transform me, but transforming me into the person that can say, just I want to see the expression of the Spirit. Okay, so let me prove it to you. I'm trying to land. I like to try to prove it to you with Jesus. I shared a little bit of this with somebody last night, kind of sparked it in my soul. I thought this is the place we land in regards to the uniqueness of the Holy Spirit. Because I truly believe you are a unique person. And you are not like you, and you are not like you, and you are not like you. You are in a lot of ways alike, but not in, not in the intimate ways that matter to your creator. You know what I mean? Like in the, in the ways that your creator knows about, you're different. We're all different. Beautifully different. And therefore, the movings of the Holy Spirit are unique. So I cannot teach you the voice of God. You cannot be taught. People go, I want to know how to hear the voice of God. What's he sound like? And I say, he sounds like what you need him to sound like. Because yeah. yeah. sometimes you'll hear him in a movie. Yeah. Ever happened to you? You're sitting in a dark theater and somebody says something on the screen. You go, oh, you get a little chill runs down the back of your spine. And it's, an ab- it's a rated R movie. You go, wait a minute. I didn't think we were supposed to go to those. Okay, it's PG-13. <laughs> whatever and and what happens up there sends something down and you hear you hear the holy spirit yes. say something yeah. to you and you walk out of there and you you had a whole different perspective on that film than anybody else because you saw something in there that was a glimpse yeah. of your father ever happened to you you know what just happened you know what just happened to you you heard the voice of god yeah. 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 you go yeah but god only speaks in church that's because you have not let the river get to your house yeah. Because if you think the river's only at church, he won't be at your house. That, that's your first step for not hearing from God. You want to know the first thing you need to do? Let the river follow you home. 
All right, so let the river live. Just let him go. Don't, don't confine him to praise and worship. Don't confine him to a certain translation of the Bible. Don't confine him to your favorite preacher. Don't confine him to YouTube. Don't confine him to Sunday morning. Just let the Holy Spirit come home with you. And as he flows and as he works, you'll start to hear him. So I can't tell you how to hear the voice of God. He speaks to you, but he sounds like Jesus. Okay, that's the litmus test. If what he says doesn't look like Jesus, you can't find it in Jesus, ignore it. Ignore it. It was a bad dinner. And it's, you know, messed you up. The powers of darkness. It's it's a thousand things. It's not the Holy Spirit. It's going to look like Jesus. But I do know, I do know that hearing the voice of God and flowing in the voice of God is unique to the individual. And there is no book you can write on what it looks like to follow because some people follow reluctantly, hesitatingly. They follow from 10 steps back. Some people follow holding his hand. Some people follow and feel as if he's dragging. He's not. They just move slow. They, they, they roll their feet. There's no real way to say how to do it. And this is exemplified in Jesus. Here's my example. In Luke 4, Jesus goes into the synagogue at Nazareth. On a Saturday morning, and the Saturday morning synagogue time was always split between the literate males of the village. And there weren't many of them. In the days of Christ, literacy was less than 3%, which means that three out of every 100 adults could read. So Jesus had somewhere in his life learned to read and was one of the eligible men to read the scriptures on this particular Saturday. Now, Many times they would have a particular reading, but most rabbinical scholars believe that's more of a modern invention for Judaism, to have a reading. This is the reading you have this week. This is the reading you have next week. But we believe that in Christ's day, it was left to the reader. He could choose what he read. And so on this particular Saturday, Jesus requests the scroll of Isaiah. And it's quite possible that they only had one or two scrolls. They didn't have this. In the years before the printing press, everything was copied by hand and passed around. And sometimes all you had were fragments. But Jesus asked for the scroll of Isaiah and unfurls it to what we would call the 61st chapter. And the first verse. They didn't call it the 61st chapter. They didn't have chapters and verses. But it sounded like this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for He hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. You know what I'm saying. You you know the scripture. And in that, Jesus talks about healing the brokenhearted, deliverance to people that are bruised, setting at liberty those who are captive. And then he throws this one in, that when you go read Isaiah 61, it's not there. Recovering of sight to the blind. When you go read Isaiah 61, there is no recovering of sight to the blind because in the Hebrew, there is no Recovering of sight to the blind. In fact, no blind people were ever healed in the Old Testament. We don't have a single blind healing in the Old Testament scriptures. And we don't have a promise in the anointing passage that we'll have blind people healed. But then there was the Septuagint. Remember we talked about this a few services ago? 70 Jewish elders that sat in a room and translated the Bible from Hebrew to Greek. About 125, 150 years before Christ. 
And Jesus is not reading the Hebrew Scriptures. Jesus is reading a Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures called Septuagint. And in Isaiah 61, for some reason that scholars are baffled about till this day, the Septuagint translators added a line to Isaiah 61. Recovering of sight to the blind. It's not there in the Hebrew. Why did they do it? I think this is fascinating. They added it. And rather than Jesus getting to it in Luke 4 and saying, well, that's not there. He reads it. And I believe the river of the Holy Spirit that is flowing through Jesus remembers that in Isaiah 38, there is a scripture that says, He'll make dumb men speak and blind men see. And Jesus thinks, well, that's good enough for me. Let's leave it in. And in Isaiah 61, he leaves in recovering of sight to the blind. And Jesus walks out of that room and does multiple times what no one in the history of the world had ever seen done. Jesus heals blind people. But to prove that the river doesn't need your permission and will not allow you to predict where it's going next... Jesus doesn't heal blind people the same way twice. So he walks up to a blind man and he touches his eyes and he can see. Jesus is accustomed to doing whatever daddy tells him to do. According to John, whatever I see my father do, that I do. Whatever I hear my father say, I say. So Jesus hears his dad say, touch that guy's eyes. Jesus touches that guy's eyes. Boom, he can see. Let's say a couple weeks later, Jesus is walking down the road. He sees another blind guy. He spits in the man's face. The Bible says, he, and after he had spit on his eyes, he spits on the man's eyes, and he opens them, and he can see. And I got to think Jesus goes, hmm. <laughs> wow. I didn't see that coming. I'm being, I don't be a little humorous. I don't know if Jesus thought that, but I do know that Jesus just listens to his dad. And he comes up to another guy and he speaks the word. Receive your sight. And the man can see. Different ways. And he finds another man one time who says, I can't see. And Jesus reaches his hand out and touches his eyes. And Jesus says, what about now? And the guy goes, kind of. I see men as trees walking. And Jesus reaches out and touches him again. And goes, what about now? And he goes, I can see. And I think in that moment, Jesus went, hmm. <laughs> Two touches. I don't know why Father does it this way. I've spit in faces. I've spoke the word. I've touched eyes. I've touched eyes twice. One day he walks up to a man, and the man hasn't been able to see since he was born. And Jesus hears that spit again. And so he spits on the ground and takes his finger and turns a little mud pie over and slides it across the man's eyes and said, now you get to participate in this one. Go wash in the pool of Siloam and receive your sight. And I used to, that was the one that got me. That was the one that got me on this trail because I went, why would Jesus send you to the pool of Siloam? He could have just spoke the word. And that was the day I heard the Holy Spirit say, go read them all. I never healed blind people the same way twice because it was the new miracle of the river of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit doesn't do the same thing twice. Amen. He just does what His Father says to do because every person He ever meets is brand new. Yes. Brand new. Brand different. 
hopes, different dreams, different problems, different needs, different past, different guilt, different shame, different condemnation. And he doesn't squeeze them into his box. He just flows the river around them and consumes them and loves them and fills them up and then comes out through their life in their personality and in their smile and in their face and in their job and in their gifts and in their talents. And he doesn't tell them that they're not good enough to be used or they're not good enough to be a part of that family. He just soaks them up until they know they are he just puts the river around him and goes it's going to be unique for this guy i'm good this one's going to be beautiful we haven't done it this way before but that's what he does with every one of you he he saw you and went we haven't done it this way before and he just we haven't done it this way before oh look at her we haven't done it this way before and for two thousand of our calendar years he's been doing a brand new every time it's why you don't get the right to judge people that's it. That's the reason why. Yeah. That's 2 Corinthians 5.16. We knew Christ according to the flesh, but we know Him no longer according to the flesh. Therefore, we know no man according to His flesh. Next verse. For if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Why is that the next verse? Because he's telling you, I don't know if they're a new creation by looking at them. Let's try it again. We knew Jesus in the flesh. We know Him no longer in the flesh. Therefore, we judge no man in the flesh. And if... Any man be in Christ. He's a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. I don't have to have seen them become new, but I believe Jesus. Therefore, I don't judge people according to the flesh. Why? Because there is a river. The streams whereof make glad the city of the Most High God. Who's the city? Us. The river, the Holy Spirit, makes us glad. So the same Jesus that did it differently every time is still doing it differently every time. I've learned I cannot anticipate how he's going to move at any meeting I go in. I don't know what you're going to pull off this weekend, God. I don't know what you're going to pull off this weekend. I even gotten to where we come into the pulpit and I go, I don't know how you're going to do this tonight. But this is going to be fun. Because you've got new people in the room. Here's the beauty of this. In a way, you're not even who you were last night. Okay. But the Holy Spirit is the river that knows that. So the Holy Spirit... Isn't trying. This is the problem we. I, I'm trying to close. I promise. It's Sunday morning. It's too long, right? Can you give me two more minutes. Listen. This is a problem when we try to live in the past, church, and the, and we're guilty of trying to recreate what we had, believing that that was the good old days. Rivers don't turn around and flow backwards. So the Holy Spirit. It's always a new day. Do you know why the Old Testament associates the sunrise with the river? Because it's a new day, everywhere the river goes is new terrain. The water that's in that river is new terrain. He ain't going back there again. And so the water in that river is new terrain. So we don't need to recreate the past. The past was what it was. It informs your present. Good ways and bad ways, if you're honest. I know we all want the good old days, but we don't want the bad old days. And there's plenty of them. Right? Oh, there may not be as many of them, but the one or two you got were bad enough to ruin the good old ones. Right? Most of us could say that and go, but I'd take them all except that one and that one and that one. If I get rid of those two or three or four, it doesn't work that way, right? You're the sum of all of it, which is why you need a fresh river to flow through you to wash over the sum of all of it so that your tomorrows are influenced by the Spirit and the you that meets tomorrow is met with a river of living Water. This is why Jesus said, if any man believes in me, have a river of living, 
living water that springs up, springs up within him so that when his day changes, when your calendar changes, the river's still flowing brand new. He goes, I'll meet you in your tomorrows. I got something for you tomorrow that's fresh. Let's pray. Father, what a precious weekend. Thank you for this, Father. Thank you that we have experienced in real time the shifting current of your river. I've watched you wash over people, through people, and surround people this weekend. I've even stood up here and watched you swallow some people beneath your waves a couple of times and then watched their head bob up out the other side with a look on their face like someone who just got to jump into a swimming pool when they were a little kid. And Father, I believe that is not a temporary moment. I believe that's the beginning of the rest of our lives. Thank you for meeting us every day when the sun comes up with a brand new direction from the Holy Spirit. Renewing rivers of living water. Thank you for the uniqueness of this audience. Let every man and woman bring their unique personality to you and you do not kill their personality. You simply wash it over with your Holy Spirit. Thank you for their beauty and their humor and their compassion and their kindness. I thank you for our dreams and our hopes and our desires, all of the things that make us what we are, those that are not beneficial to our future. We believe you will drown beneath the waves of your love in your pacing and at your time. And those that have been placed into us by heaven to benefit our family, our friends, and the world around us will be amplified by the waters of the Holy Spirit because a quality of water is that it amplifies sound. And as you surround us with the Holy Spirit, you amplify the things in our lives that matter. And if there's one person here who for the first time today has encountered the risen Jesus and wants to set their heart to follow him, I invite you to set your heart to follow him now. To accept Christ and become a disciple of Jesus. And how that begins is to believe by faith that he is alive and that he loves you. And to give yourself over to following the voice that will begin, I think, even now by the Holy Spirit in your life. Even if you're a baby Christian, oh yeah, the Holy Spirit knows exactly how to talk to babies. (laughs) He knows exactly how to talk whatever your education level is in the Spirit. The Holy Spirit knows your tongue. Father. In Jesus' name, we believe it. And if you receive that today, say amen.